All right, well, let's take a few seconds for spiritual preparation, and then I'll open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're thankful uh, for every opportunity that we have to study the Word of God, to re- review and uh, learn from the mind of Christ. We're thankful for these books in the Old Testament that are very pertinent to our lives and, and what's happening. Uh, we pray today as we study in the book of Esther, concluding our study there, that we will truly understand the importance of why this book is in the canon of Scripture. Help us to also understand specifically what is happening in the text. We pray, Father, for those in our congregation who are ill, uh, particularly for Trent and Loray and Irene, her leg, uh, Nancy as she recovers from her tonsillectomy, and, uh, and others. We certainly pray, Father, for your healing hand on them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We are in studying, really, the book of Ezra and hoping to arrive at Nehemiah as well. Um, But today we are in Ezra by way of Esther. And we're going to study Esther's second banquet in chapter 7. And then we're going to see... Haman's death and the Jews delivered, and we'll see the basis for the Jewish feast of Purim. So this is a really enjoyable book, and we're sort of gliding through it, trying to point out some of the more uh, interesting parts of it as we go. Now, What we have here also, and let me move back to our, we have two two slides that are important to us. Um, First of all, we need to see the extent of the Persian Empire, because that's going to be important to us today. We can see that it, it, as we'll read, it covers all the way from India the eastern side of India up into current-day Turkey, all of the Lydian kingdom, which was later be known as the Roman province of Asia or Anatolia, and then down into um, North Africa as far down as um, Ethiopia. So you can see that the kingdom, um, and as its full extent, was was remarkable, and um, we're also looking at this uh, this slide that indicates where we are in history, and where we are in history is between the two early returns, Zerubbabel and Ezra. And there's a gap between the two of them after the temple is dedicated in 515 before Ezra returns to help reform those who are in the land. And we believe that Esther occurs somewhere in the vicinity here uh, between 483 and 
473. This is the uh, this 10-year period. So, and um, those of you who have the handout can also see the uh, the different kings that we are that play in our our study. And uh, if you have that handout, the fourth page shows that after Darius the Great, Darius being the king that sent Zerubbabel back, we have Xerxes. And Xerxes is the king that is addressed in Esther. Uh, His name is used in chapter 1, verse 1. In Esther, he's called Ahasuerus, but that is Xerxes. And he is on the throne at this particular time. Now, in our our study of Esther, we have, of course, seen that Esther replaces Queen Vasti, who was replaced, dethroned, and after she becomes queen, she, of course, is in a very important part of the kingdom, uh, in a very important position. And after she becomes queen, her cousin, Mordecai, who is much older than she is, but was the brother of her father, tells her not to make her uh, nationality, the fact that she's Jewish, not to make that public because he wants her to compete on the basis of her own merit. And so she doesn't. But we also see that there's another individual in the kingdom, and his name is Haman, who gains the pleasure of the king and is given uh, the highest position in the land right behind the king. Uh, that was called really the, the Grand Vizier at that time, or at least that's the name that's coming down to us. And it was somebody who was um, second in the kingdom or someone who served the king, um, might say like a chief of staff or something like that. And so that's the position that Haman holds. And Haman, of course, we believe his history comes from uh, the Amalekites. And they were arch enemies of the of the Jews, and so that with that little bit of an understanding, we can see how he would truly resent Mordecai not bowing down to him, and we can also see why Mordecai doesn't want to bow down to Haman. But Haman parlays that into a a royal decree to. Um, uh, defeat, annihilate, and kill. Let me go back and pick up the exact words of the decree. His decree says in Esther 3, verse 13, letters were sent by couriers, 
Esther 3, Esther 3.13 says, And the letters carrying the decree of the king were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. So this was the decree that was sent out by Haman. Um, So you can tell that there's a significant hatred here, not just against Mordecai. It would be wonderful if uh, Mordecai... uh, if if, Erkshin wouldn't be wonderful, but it would be at least understandable if he had... Um, taking his actions and uh, anger out against Mordecai, but he doesn't. He goes after the entire, really, the, all the Jews in the kingdom. And since we've seen the kingdom, it's an extensive, uh, an extensive kingdom. And that's going to help us to understand later when we see some of these numbers. And I'll talk about those in a, in a little bit. But any, anyhow. Uh, once the, the letter with the decree is sent out, Mordecai speaks with Esther, requesting that she approach the king. She does, and her, she is welcomed into the king's presence, and she doesn't make the plea for, or make her request initially. She requests uh, a banquet, an audience with the king by way of a banquet, and brings Haman in as well. And she does that twice, so that as we begin the last portion, well, actually we have one other, just before the second um, banquet, uh, the king is unable to sleep. And uh, as he's unable to sleep, we're not told why he's not, but apparently there is something going on in the kingdom that's bothering him. And so he asks for the royal chronicles to be brought forward. And as he's reading in the chronicles, he discovers that Mordecai had uh, uncovered a plot, reported the plot. The plot was to assassinate the king. And the king is, they arrest the individuals involved, find out that the plot is, uh, that there was an assassination, assassination plot. And uh, the two individuals are executed, but nothing is done for Mordecai. So the king says, well, what was done for Mordecai? Well, the answer is nothing. And so he uh, calls in his grand vizier, and he, is, he asks him, what should I do for someone who, um, that I would like to honor? And, of course, Haman thinks it's going to be him. He's occupied with himself. He's very proud of himself. And so he, he outlines... Uh, what he believes would, should be done to somebody that the king wants to honor, thinking it's going to be him. And turns out it's Mordecai. And the highest um, advisor in the land is directed to be the one who dis, uh, displays the honor to Mordecai. So he has to do that. Um, and it's about that time that uh, Haman uh, begins to get a sense of things changing in the kingdom. So that's where we are at the end of chapter 6. Um, the end of chapter 6, we see verse 12. 
maybe beginning at verse 11. So Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai, and led him, Mordecai, on horseback through the city square, and proclaimed before him, before Mordecai, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Afterwards, Mordecai went back to the king's gate. In other words, he's been honored. Uh, He's a humble man. He doesn't request anything else. He goes right back to doing his job as a an official at the uh, the, in the king's gate and the the government uh, at that time. But Haman hurried to his house, sorrowful, with his head covered. When Haman told his wife uh, Zeresh and all her friends everything that had happened to him. His wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will absolutely fall, will certainly fall before him. So this sense of what's going to happen is now before us. While they were still talking with him, the king's officials came and hastened to bring Haman to the second banquet that Esther has planned, has prepared. So there we are, chapter 7. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. Now, there's there's much irony in this chapter as we go through. It's just a remarkable chapter. Um, Haman thinks he's going to be honored um, by the king and the queen. I mean, this is a very honorable thing to happen, but in reality, he's going to his to be sentenced. Uh, the king doesn't know that, and of course, Esther doesn't know that. But the first thing we have, you know, is the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. So Mordecai now has been honored, um, and Esther is in a position. Uh, that she can influence the king. And you can just sort of feel the stage being set here for Haman. And on the second day, which is really, we would understand, is the second banquet, at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Up to half the kingdom it shall be done. And again, we examined this phrase last week and we realized that it is a a figure of speech. It's an indication that he will very favorably uh, entertain her request. That's what this means. And what we also see is that uh, he expects the the request to be material. I'll, I'll give you whatever you want here. And it's, he anticipates a material request. He's not anticipating a request for her life. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, and this is how she always approaches the king, uh, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. Well, if we had the opportunity for to see this in reality and you know the camera being on the king and the camera being on Haman we would probably recognize the king now realizing that there's a lot more going on here than what he previously understood 
And Haman, who already has this pall of gloom hanging over him, is now probably beginning to realize exactly what is happening here. You know, the the doors are beginning to close on him. For we have been sold. We have been sold, my people and I, to be, and now she quotes the decree, and that's why I wanted to start with that decree, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. And, of course, this has not occurred that, uh, it hasn't been that long ago that this occurred. And that phrase, of course, would be recognized by Haman, that those are his words, and the king probably recognizes it as well. And the word sold here is a reference to Esther 3.9 where Haman offers, if it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasury. So this is the selling, this is the betrayal of that she's that she's addressing had we been sold as male and female slaves says had we been sold as uh, male and female slaves i would have held my tongue although and then we have a very difficult phrase here to translate in hebrew and uh it's translated different in different English versions, and that's how you can always tell it's a problem. But the word here for, uh, had I held my tongue, although the enemy, and the word there can be enemy, but it also could be uh, a difficult time or an affliction, and either one of those uh, is probably uh, a good translation, an accurate translation. But this is probably more of a... Again, a figure of speech. That's pretty much how we understand this. And it could be the king could never compensate for the king. Uh, the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. Or it could be maybe a little bit better understood. Uh, the distress could never be sufficient to trouble the king. So the idea here, if I was just being made a slave, that's one thing. But I'm, I'm pleading for my life. And that's the only reason I would ever bother the king with such a request. It's because it's, it's, this is truly a grave request. It's not a request that is um, wasting the king's time. But I'm truly requesting the life of myself and my people. And so... It's a figure of speech that indicates the gravity of her request. She says, I I wouldn't waste the king's time, even if I was to be a slave. That's how important this is. So king, so king Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? Who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? Haman sitting right there, right beside him. Again, the irony of all this is just remarkable. And Esther said, you know, she doesn't say, she doesn't beat around the bush, she doesn't say, well, 
someone very close to you, uh, high up in your government, she just all of a sudden, right there he is. And Esther said, the adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. And of course, the king, you know, when he hears her quote from the letter, probably remembers that. Yes. And now he knows who she is as well. He knows that she's Jewish. And so all of this just rolls together at once. <laughs> so Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. You know, his lies and his plots here are being revealed. And they're not just being revealed anywhere, but it's in front of the king and in front of the queen who this king loves and uh, has such a high... Re- His regard for her is is, uh, exceeding. Then the king rose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. And almost everybody you read about this, that this is really unusual for a king to do this because the king was trained, excuse me, from youth and um, his normal uh, demeanor is not to show... Uh, confusion or doubt it's to be decisive or to to make a decision either to call for uh, the wise man or to say we need to make a decision here but for him to get up and walk out is highly unusual so the situation where the king finds himself is his, his queen has made a request for her life the man that he has placed at his his right side, that is supposed to be someone who's loyal and dedicated. He trusts. He gives him his signet ring, which means he gives him uh, the authority to act in the king's name. And all of this just comes at once. And he thinks that when the queen makes the request, I'm going to be able to uh, demonstrate my generosity to her. And now it's a decision to save her life and also... He has to make a judgment against his, you know, the Grand Vizier, the highest ranking official in the government. And it's just too much. He gets up and walks out because he's trying to probably do two things. He's very angry, number one. But number two, uh, I think it shows excellent. I mean, the, the king has obviously made some mistakes. But at this particular point in time, he's making, uh, he's demonstrating good judgment. He's going to walk out and he's going to think about what he's about to do before he does it. <clears throat> so verse 7, Then the king arose from his wrath, from the banquet of wine, and went into the, the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther. Now, Haman has a choice. Uh, he has two individuals of power here. One is obviously the king, and the other one, of course, is Queen Esther. And he could, could have chose to have dismissed himself and walked out and spoke to the king. But he knows that he's not going to be successful there. That the real power here lies with the queen if he can somehow get her forgiveness 
And then she can petition the king. And that's his choice. And so it says, pleading for his life. For he saw, or he realized, the, what, how we would say that, that harm was determined against him by the king. You know, the king got up, walks out. He's so upset over what he's just learned. And Haman knows his goose is cooked, as we would say. Then the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine. And the word here for, for, the, uh, for the, the feast and the banquet is always, uh, it's the word for drinking, but it's a different word for drinking. So uh, in their feasts, they would just consume a lot of wine with their feasts. And so it's always a drink, either they're dining or it's a banquet of wine. That's how it's translated. Haman, and my New King James translation here says, had fallen across the couch where Esther was. Um, Several things to understand. Um, The Persians, uh, like the Greeks, when they were eating, they would generally uh, lie down. They would recline to eat. And so she's reclined on her translated couch here, but it's just the place where she would recline. And the king had one, and Haman had one. And what he's done is he's fallen at her feet. Because in those days, in the ancient Near East, when you would beg someone, you would naturally fall at their feet. But it was also traditional that you would hold their feet. You would, you would place your hands on their feet and sometimes kiss their feet. And so that's what he's, that's what he's doing. He's fallen at her feet and probably taken her feet and he's probably uh, kissing her feet or whatever it is and he's pleading for her life. And so the king walks back in and there she is over there at her feet. And uh, some translations say that he was trying to molest her. Well, the king says, oh, assaulting her now. Well, he's not assaulting her even though that's what the king says because in his mind, um, what he's about to do is to execute Haman. And so he's in his anger, he sees him over there with his hands on her feet. And so he describes it as that in that way. Um, then the king said, Will he also assault the queen while I am in the house? And makes it even that much worse. As the word left the king's mouth and... It's not that as he said that to Haman, but the understanding here is that as he is now um, voicing his decision, his judgment on Haman, so he's giving a judicial decision. So as this judicial sentence leaves the king's mouth, they cover Haman's face. He's a condemned man. And so he does, he says... Haman is to be executed. And as soon as he says that, they come in and cover his face. It's, as, it's a way of um, removing him immediately from the king's presence. Here's a condemned man. You cover his head. You get him out of there. And that's what's happening. Um, and the, again, the irony here is that Mordecai would not bow down to his feet but Haman is now begging at the feet of this Jewish, uh, Jewish woman for his, his life.
Now, Harbonah, one of the eunuchs, one of the officials, said to the king, Look, behold, Hanay, the gallows, this pole that he had erected to execute Mordecai, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. So Mordecai, this official, says, Mordecai, who acted in your behalf, Haman plans to impale him, Mordecai, on this pole. Then the king said, lift him on it, hang him on it, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman, they hanged him on the wood, on the gallows, that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. So chapter 7 is short, but it is just a, a remarkable chapter. It's just full of, of action and intrigue and back and forth. It's probably wonderful to act out in a, in a play. Chapter 8, on that day... So the banquet started early. It probably started early afternoon. There's a lot of time in this day. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house, here understood as the estate of Haman. So he just says, everything that he has, I'm giving to you. And, of of course, Esther, she has anything she wants anyhow. So she just turns the estate over to Mordecai. And Mordecai, uh, to Queen Esther, the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Notice that now, correctly identified, he was an enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told how he had related this to her, how he was related to her. In other words, this is my cousin, but he's really also um, had adopted me and he's uh, acting as my father. So he reveals that uh, who Mordecai is and his relationship. And of course, that can do nothing more but benefit Mordecai. I mean, it's just continual understanding of who this, this Mordecai is. He may be Jewish, but he's not an enemy of the state. He's the one who saved your life, or at least revealed the plot, and he was going to be executed. So here we go. You know, it's just that much more in Mordecai's favor. So the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai over the estate of Haman. Um, so all of this is happening now Mordecai is in the same position that Haman was he has the authority here uh, to act and speak for the king now Esther spoke again to the king see what we have so far we have now uh, managed to save Mordecai but that's not the end of the story we still have you know I guess you could say the curtain falls and say, okay, we've saved and Esther saved. But no, we still have a lot more of this story to reveal and much more needs to be done. So Esther again speaks to the king. She falls at his feet. And the, the, 
the way that this is written, it uh, there's an indication that there's a, there's a break here in the feast, and so she needs to re-enter the king's presence. Now Esther spoke again to the king, so she approaches the king again, falling at his feet and imploring him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman, the Agagite, and the scheme, the plot, which he had devised against the Jews. And so she re-enters, and the king again holds out the scepter, which is the indication that she may enter and be accepted in his presence. And the king held out the golden scepter towards Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king and said, If it pleases the king, and again, if I have found favor in his sight, and this thing seems right to the king. So she's, again, addressing the king as she always does, but she also says to the king, If this seems right to you, if this is what we should do. So she's asking the king's judgment upon her recommendation as well. And I am pleasing in his eyes. Let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman. See, she doesn't say revoke the laws. Because as we read on, and we've already understood, the law cannot be revoked. It's irrevocable. So the only thing that can happen here is somehow to neutralize the letters that have carried this disastrous decree out to the far reaches of the kingdom. So she says, to revoke the letters devised by Haman. Notice she doesn't say that you sent out, king, you know, you place us in a bad situation by allowing this decree to occur. He doesn't say that. It's, again, back on Haman. <clears throat> the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. So we're talking about all the provinces, not just here in the immediate area. For how can I endure to see the evil, the harm that will come to my people, to the Jewish people, or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? And the word people, I think, does refer to the Jewish people as a whole, but then she brings it closer to home, and she says, my countrymen, and a better translation of that might be, my offspring, my kindred. And while she doesn't have any children, Mordecai is right here. And so she's talking about something that's very close to her. So she's really appealing to the king, not just for the Jewish people, but then she brings it even closer to home, meaning you know, those who, I, who are members of my personal family. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai, because and that's important that Mordecai is standing right there. And again, the Jew. Indeed, I have given Esther the estate of Haman, and they have hanged him. They have impaled him on the wood, the pole, because he tried to lay his hands on the Jews. You yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews, as you please, in the king's name, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for, for whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. And that takes us back to the original decree. 
can't revoke the other decree, but what we can do is write a law, a decree, that will counteract it or act as a defense for the Jews. And you'll notice it says here, I have given Esther the estate of Haman, whom they have uh, lifted up on the wood, because he tried to lay his hands on the Jews. So he's executed here because he tried to lay his hands on the Jews, because he tried to attack the Jews. So the king now is fully supportive of the Jews. And we're going to see how that works out. Verse 9, his full support means that his noblemen and his military personnel are going to be in support of what um, Mordecai writes here. So the king's scribes were called at that time. And we need scribes because we need to write this in many languages, not just one language. So we get all the scribes in here. In the third month, so this is early. We're still early in the year. The decree, remember, uh, Haman devised this uh, during the first month. So the king's scribes were called at that time. In the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, uh, satraps, the governors, and the princes of the province from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces all, to every province in its own script, to every people in their own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. What's going to be important here is that the Jews understand the the various parts and the authority um, of the decree. And he, Mordecai, wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed it with the king's signet ring, and sent letters by couriers on horseback, riding on royal horses, bred from swift steeds. So they're getting the information out here. The indication is as fast as they can, and officially on the riding on royal horses. Verse 11, By these letters the king permitted the Jews, who were in every city, to gather together. And the in- indication here with gathering together is that there may have been a decree that prohibited the gathering together like this of the, uh, of the Jewish population. To gather together, or could have extended to other um, tribes and organizations, uh, uh, tribes as well. But they're allowed to gather together and protect their lives. And then we have the same phrase, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would attack them, that would assault them. Uh, and then it says, little children and women, and to plunder their, their possessions. And a little difficult again in the Hebrew to quite understand exactly what it's saying. Um, they would they would be able to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province who would assault them, meaning also if and assaulting their women and children as well. That's what the idea is here. And then it says, and they could plunder their possessions. We'll see later on that that's not something that the uh, the Jews will do. They they're not going to plunder. They're going to defend themselves, but they're not going to plunder. Uh, And I think another indication of that is 
that for the most part the Jews were simply defending themselves, even though this the first decree has been um, more or less neutralized by the Jews being able to defend themselves, there are going to be a significant amount of uh, those who apparently supported Haman and were enemies of the Jews. On one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So what we have here is that was the day that was selected by Haman, the last month on the 13th day, to annihilate, to kill and to destroy the Jews. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree to every province and published for all people so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves, to defend themselves on their enemies. The couriers who rode on royal horses went out, hastened and pressed on by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Sushan, the citadel. We're going to see that uh, in the citadel there's a fairly significant... um, group of people who uh, obviously supported Haman who were anxious and will still attack the Jews Uh, so Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white that's the colors of the kingdom with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple and the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad and remember the city of Susan up to this point was perplexed over the decree that Haman had sent out. And we see that at the end of chapter 3. So it says, The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Sushan, the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Sushan was perplexed. So now the city rejoices because they realize that justice has been done. And in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. Then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. Well, what this tells us is that um, up to that point, or excuse me, uh, the Jews do have an evangelistic message to uh, other nations of the world, to the Gentiles. And at this point, they uh, they converted. Many of them did convert. Now there are are many who who question this. Um, what we're going to read in chapter nine, and also what appears to be maybe an overreaction here regarding uh, retribution. And I think this is simply an indication. Uh, of the doctrine of uh, retributive justice. It's the idea of what you sow that you're going to reap. You will reap what you sow. And, of course, that's taught in several passages of Scripture. One of them is in Proverbs 22.8. Let's look at Proverbs 22.8. Proverbs 22.8 is where we first read this. In Proverbs 22.8, we have, He who sows iniquity will reap sorrow. So all of those who 
hated the Jews, who were looking forward to having the opportunity to kill them, they are going to reap sorrow, and the rod of his anger will fail. Let's go to Hosea 8.7. Hosea, Daniel. Ezekiel, Daniel. That's where we are. So Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea 8. Verse 7. It says, They reap the wind... Excuse me, they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. So they cause a storm, but they're going to be reaped by that storm. Galatians 6 is our next passage. Galatians 6 7. Galatians 6 7, of course. Says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man, a person sows, that he will also reap. And so that's what's occurring here. Um, another very interesting passage, let's go back to Proverbs 16:33. You'll remember that Haman threw. Lots, and that is going to be our translation. Per is the word lot, and it's going to be the basis for the, the Feast of Purim. But in Proverbs 16.33 we read, the, co- the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So, yes, The lot was cast, but in the end here, what's going to actually happen is that the Lord is going to control the results of the the, uh, tossing of this lot. All right, let's go to chapter 9. Chapter 9 is now going to report what is going to occur. We jump forward from the third month of the year to the twelfth month. Now, in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. Actually, we have here his decrees, plural, because there's two decrees that are going to be enacted. But, of course, this is referring to the decree of the Jews defending themselves. On that day, on the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred. So there is still this hope and desire. They're still going to attack the Jews. They just think they can overpower them. In that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. You'll notice that the hatred here is towards the Jews. The Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought them harm. And no one could withstand them, because fear of them fell upon all the people. And all the officials of the province, the satraps, the governors, and all those doing the king's work, helped the Jews, because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. His Mordecai is in a high-ranking position now, and so all the king's um, officials are now on the other side. They're supporting the king 
and Mordecai. For Mordecai was great in the king's palace, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For this man, Mordecai, became increasingly prominent. So he is uh, rising to a position of prominence that probably exceeded Haman. Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. And in Sushan, the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. So there's a fairly significant group here that were supporting Haman. And also, Parshandatha, Dalphon, uh, Espatha, Por, uh, Paratha, uh, Dalia, Eridatha, Parmashta, uh, Arishshai, Arithdai, and Vayezatha. Those are all the, those are the, the provinces in and around the area there. The ten sons of Haman, the son of Mahadatha, the enemy of the Jews, they killed, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. So the Jews are not plundering. On that day, the number of those who were killed in Sushan, the citadel, the capital here, was brought to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Sushan, the citadel, and the ten sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? So, if they've done that here, the sense that the question is, the question is not simply, uh, well, 500 were killed here, I wonder what the, the tally is in the rest of the, the land. It's, no, if 500 were killed here, how many more are going to be killed, indicating there's going to be a significant amount more that are killed outside the, uh, the uh, citadel of Sushan? Because, again, we have 127 provinces here. Now, what is your petition? So, the indication, again, is that she's come to him and she has a further petition. It shall be granted you. Or what is your further request? It shall be done. Verse 13. Then Esther said, If it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Sushan to do again tomorrow according to today's decree. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged, let them be impaled on the gallows. And so what she's requesting is that those ten sons who have been, who are dead, let them be uh, lifted up and displayed in such a way so the word will go out that uh, this is a vile deed that Haman tried to uh, perpetrate. Uh, And she also requests one more day because obviously to her, what she's heard, that there are still many out there who would like to kill the Jews. So the king commanded this, this to be done. The the decree was issued in Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. They impaled them, displayed them. And the Jews who were in Shushan gathered together again on the 14th day of the month of of Adar and killed 300 men at Shushan. So there was a total of 800 there. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. The remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces, all 127 of them, gathered together and protected their lives, had rest from their enemies, and killed 75,000 of their enemies. So throughout, you can tell that there's, first of all, there are many, many Jews who are spread throughout the Medo-Persian Empire. And there were many um, in the empire who sought to do harm to the Jews. 
There are those who say that this is an exaggeration, 75,000, and it is a significant number, but when spread over that entire area, um, I think there's two things that indicate. Number one, um, there is a significant Jewish population on the earth and in that area, and there were a significant number who um, who hated the Jews uh, as Haman did, but they did not lay hand on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th of the month they rested and made it a, a day of feast and gladness. So the only place where there's an extended day is in Sushan. I mean, that's the only place where they could probably get the, the word out that there's going to be another day. So it's just the 13th day throughout the empire, but it's two days in the area of Sushan. Verse 18. But the Jews who were at Sushan assembled together on the 13th day as well as on the 14th and on the 15th of the month. They, and on the 15th they rested. So the 13th and the 14th they defended themselves and on the 15th day they rested and made it a day of feast and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled cities celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday for the sending, for sending uh, a feast of as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. And Mordecai... So we have both the 14th day being celebrated in the uh, provinces and the 15th day being celebrated in Shushan. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in all provinces of King Ahasuerus to establish among them that they should celebrate Yearly, both those days, the 14th and the 15th days of the month of Adar, as the days in which the Jews had rest from their enemies, as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them, and from mourning to a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, of sending presents to one another, and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun as Mordecai had written to them, because Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them. And he had cast Pur, the lot, to consume them and destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letter that this wicked plot which Haman had devised against the Jews should return on his head and that he and his sons should be impaled on the poles, the wood. So they called these days Purim. So very often people, often uh, they'll ask, why do we call the feast Purim? And even though there's still some discussion as to whether... uh, Per has to do with a lot that was cast. Esther reports that that is so. So the tradition, if it comes from the book of Esther, we do believe that that, that is correct, that it's called Purim because of the casting of the lots. So they called these days Purim after the name Pur. Therefore, because of all the words of this letter, what they had seen concerning this matter and what had happened to them. 
The Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who would join them, that without fail they should celebrate these two days every year according to the written instructions and according to the prescribed time, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, every city, that those days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Avihal, Hal, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim. And he, Mordecai, sent letters to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, with words of peace and truth, to confirm these days of Purim at their appointed time as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had prescribed for them, and as they had decreed for themselves and their descendants concerning matters of their fasting and lamenting. So the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the book. So in the book that they're quoting here is sort of a history book that apparently was used at that time in the Jewish community. So that reports exactly... What happened um, at the end uh, as a result of what was occurring in the uh, in Sushan and the result of the um, the hatred and the anger of of Haman, uh, the Lord reversed those circumstances, and that's uh, again one of the lessons that we have here is that uh, God truly is in charge of circumstances and. Those who wish ill on others uh, are very often going to find themselves the subject of their own wrath, the object of their own wrath. And then in chapter 10, And King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea. And this is an interesting verse. It's often questioned exactly what it means. But it seems to indicate that he prospers. He would not be able to do this. He wouldn't be able to impose this if he wasn't prospering as a king. So because of his actions and because of the the prosperity of the Jews within his kingdom, he prospers. Verse 2, Now all the acts of his power and his might and the account of the greatness of Mordecai. So Mordecai continues to be very prominent. To which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings? of Media and Persia. For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus and was great among the Jews and well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his countrymen and speaking peace uh, for the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen, all his kindred. Um, and that's a rather quick uh, read through Esther. But you know, the remarkable thing about this book is that throughout the entire book, the word Elohim, the word God, and certainly the word Yahweh, Lord, is not mentioned. But the, the sense of it is, the lesson is, that even where God does not appear to be, He is, in fact, uh, working in history. He is the hand behind history. He is working history for His own pleasure and for his own benefit. 
And so even where we see here what we would consider to be made a pagan capital uh, with Haman who is um, uh, devising evil upon the Jews, God is there protecting them, guiding them, and protecting them. And that's our... Uh, and that's one of the lessons that comes from here. And there's, of course, many others as we went through uh, the book. Uh, we can see that Esther was placed in a, a very prominent position for a specific reason. Uh, Mordecai, who is a very humble individual, is promoted and uh, ends up in a prominent position. And um, these are all marvelous, marvelous lessons. But for us, that is an indi- uh, one of our uh, historical uh, events or references as Israel is now returning to the land. So they've been exiled, they have been disciplined, and now God is bringing them back to the land. And in all of this, God is caring for them and, taking, uh, and preserving them. And so next week, we'll come back. We'll be back, not next week, I think it's the week after next, is that correct? Next week, we don't have... Uh, class, uh, noon hour Bible class is not going to meet next week because we have a banquet here, a luncheon, better way of saying it. I'm thinking of banquets. Uh, we're going to have a luncheon here, um, which, by the way, is for Christian leaders, and so um, we we'll have to stay kind of in touch with Kathy, but uh, there very well may be uh, openings and availability for uh, members of the, of the church to attend. And it should be very good because it's going to be Cornwall Alliance of the Family Foundation. Uh, I think it will be an excellent, uh, an excellent banquet, a lot of excellent information uh, disseminated for us. Next, so the week after next, we'll be back in Ezra beginning chapter, I think it's chapter 7, where we're going to begin. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your divine presence in our lives. And we see that you are working in history and you are there protecting us and uh, providing for us even when it seems that you're not. But we know you are because you are the sovereign God and we are your children and you do love us. And the things that occur in our lives are designed for our benefit. And so, Father, we ask you again to uh, act in the history of the United States. We pray, Father, that the truth of what is happening in this nation right now will be uh, apparent to Americans so that the proper decisions will be made. We pray that there will be many uh, believers who will uh, not simply sit back, but they will be uh, involved in what's happening in this nation because we are a nation with a spiritual heritage. A spiritual heritage was established by believers who were taking an active hand. Help us to be involved and certainly help us as individual believers to uh, build and reinforce our own spiritual uh, spiritual foundation so that, Father, uh, we will bring honor and glory to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.